Hi, this is Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Today, my guest is Dr. Tamara K. Knopper, a sociologist, writer, editor, and data artist with experience teaching in Asian American studies and ethnic studies, and working with and for Asian American communities and anti-war organizations. Her research focuses on Black Korean conflict and racial and gender wealth gap, financialization, criminalization, punishment, and the social impact of technology. She's also the editor of Maryam Kaba's We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. Listeners might be able to connect some of the themes discussed in my chat with Dr. Knopper. In my sixth episode, Asoko Sarazawa and I briefly discussed violence in Asian and Asian American communities. In the very same episode, we had at length examined the impacts of colonization as enacted by science and technology. Most recently, Dr. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein shared concerns regarding ideals in science and technology, race, and power, topics that Dr. Knopper and I revisit in this episode. One of the first pieces I read of yours is your entry in Ruha Benjamin's anthology, Captivating Technology, which is a nice collection of chapters on race, carceral technoscience, and liberatory imaginations. I want to begin our discussion with your chapter, because I think the role of technology and social media recur quite a bit in my other questions. Your article is titled Digital Character in the Scored Society, where you highlight that both traditional credit score systems and social media alternatives are not different from each other in that the social context of the scored society is another design of inequality. He makes some interesting observations that FICO considers itself scientific and therefore less discriminatory than alternative data from social media activity. And you cite an article from the Wall Street Journal where that writer notes that credit lending companies are mining Facebook, Twitter, and other social media data to determine a borrower's credit worthiness or identity. Why has social media become a panacea for such practices? What motivated you to write this piece? I was interested in writing the piece because I had been kind of paying attention to what is known as alternative data. So the conversation about social media um, and credit scores is really a bigger conversation about uh, what is known as alternative data. And this is a term that people use at the policy level, consumer advocates use it. Um, as well as people who study kind of big data and technology. And basically, it's where, um, given the significance of credit scoring and of our credit scores to kind of our financial lives, so if you're trying to get a loan or if you're trying to get certain kind of, you know, rotating credit, um, there's ways where your credit score plays a significant part in that. And so this is, you know, when we think about, for example, we see on television, all these commercials like creditkarma.com or, Mm -hmm. you know, people trying to increase their credit score and suddenly their life appears better on screen and so forth. And so because credit scores are so significant to our financial lives, there's been an increased concern over several decades. The conversation isn't totally new. So over several decades, there's been increased concern about people who are known as either credit unscorable or credit invisible. And these are people who either don't have a credit score um, or they don't have enough data to kind of create a credit score profile in some way. And so these are people who basically don't have the data 
that could be used to give them a credit score. And so they're kind of scoreless in this sense. Um, and being scoreless does have consequences. And so what you've had is people pushing for other forms of data, what they will describe as alternative data, to be factored into um, people's kind of profile. And this is part of a bigger conversation about risk assessment. Mm -hmm. People use credit scores or institutions use credit scores to try to determine what level of risk um, it is if they make you a loan, for example. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, scoring in the scored society is very much tied up to kind of this bigger concern about risk assessment and risk assessment practices. But for now, when we're thinking about kind of the financial system, um, you've had people who've been pushing then for what is known as alternative data. And they say, we have people who don't have a, a score profile that would allow them to get a credit score. And therefore, they're kind of locked out institutionally and that they're going to be disadvantaged institutionally because of it. So what this means is people are basically thinking about data that is usually not factored by the major credit scoring companies. And credit scoring companies like, you know, FICO credit score, but also companies like Experian or Equifax um, or TransUnion. And what you have then is alternative data can mean many things. And we want to kind of think about that in a couple of levels. One is it basically is meant to kind of say anything that's alternative beyond what, um, these large credit scoring companies have often measured. Part of the difficulty of that is, and this is something I talk about in my chapter for Dr. Benjamin's book, is you know these credit scoring companies are not always super forthcoming about what they actually calculate. So they give us kind of a broad portrait and they'll say, well, we take into account this, this, and this, but they don't actually tell us the calculations. Those are kind of company trade secrets because credit scoring companies are for-profit companies, right? And so what you have then is alternative data can mean anything basically um, beyond, you know, kind of what we'd often assume to be as your payment history on your loans or, you know, and so forth. So some people have advocated for utility bill payments to be, and rental history payments, rental payment history to be considered alternative data. Some people have said it should be um, your social media, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that that can be it. Um, and one of the things we want to remember is that anything can be turned into data, right? So we use that term sometimes, but you could turn anything into data and say any activity we're going to decide to kind of classify it, measure it, and give weight to certain activities and the repetition of certain activities in determining some type of profile for you. So my chapter was looking at specifically some of these kind of tech companies and the way that they were using social media data as a form of alternative data, but that's just one kind of realm of alternative data, right? Um, but also it was about what is this kind of debate going on between kind of the big credit scoring companies, the giants like FICO or Experian or TransUnion or Equifax, and these kind of tech companies, right? And so there's this kind of battle going on between them at the level of the marketplace. You know, they're basically competing, mm -hmm. right? They're competing for kind of whose score is seen as more valid, 
right? Mm -hmm. And some of these tech companies that are making these loans based upon alternative data profiles are also creating their own credit scoring measurements, right? And so they're also kind of using their technological skills, using their data mining skills and all this stuff to try to give kind of some of these big credit scoring companies a run for their money. So what happens is this battle going on in the marketplace, right, at the level of kind of for-profit companies and lenders um, is being couched as kind of a battle over racial justice. I think that's BS, obviously, right? I don't think for-profit companies should be at the forefront of, you know, kind of defining what racial justice means. I was interested in unpacking how these companies were kind of couching their business interests and their competition with each other as this battle over kind of racial justice and the way that they were doing so by using this kind of discourse of science. Mm -hmm. And so you have um, these, you know, like Experian, TransUnion and Equifax and FICO, they're kind of claiming that their credit scoring models are quote unquote more scientific. And then they're gonna say, well, it's less biased then because we're more scientific. And they're trying to kind of say, well, the social media profile stuff is not gonna be as unbiased. It's not kind of as scientific, um, Mm -hmm. that this is maybe kind of shady data to use, right? Mm -hmm. So they're gonna say things like, well, you know, you're going to see what somebody looks like on social media. So then you'll know possibly their race or gender and that that could be more of a reason to discriminate against somebody, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the, the company like FICO would say, well, we use a more scientific calculation based upon just so-called facts and numbers and we don't actually know who the person is racially or gender and supposedly then we're less racist, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a battle over one, what type of data are you collecting? But it's also this way where they're both trying to claim that they're kind of, you know, the big, the big companies are saying, well, we have a more scientific version, so we're less racist. Mm-hmm. The other companies are saying, well, we're actually helping out all these people you've locked out, the ones that can't get a credit score. And we're actually helping more people of color in that way, because these are, you know, the reality is the credit scoreables and credit invisibles are disproportionately people of color. Mm-hmm. They're disproportionately immigrants. They're disproportionately a lot of times elderly, right? And women, right? People who've often been disadvantaged in accumulating kind of credit because of institutional policies and practices that have been sexist or racist, right? And so uh, this is what I was interested in is basically how are they both kind of competing over consumers? Mm-hmm. They're competing over kind of who um, has kind of cultural power in the marketplace mm-hmm. and who makes money but they're doing it by claiming they care about racial inequality right um, i remember it was it towards your conclusion you said that the traditional company and then the social media companies they ultimately they share a vision of economic life based on credit yes. and the worthiness of credit and i think that was a it was a nice reminder that that um even when something as how would one say um, inviting as alternative data might mm-hmm. be like that doesn't actually dispel the fact that like you say they're marketplace lenders that share economic visions of worthiness and i mean i think and so this goes to your question that you had asked about the scored society so the mm-hmm. term scored society that's a phrase from um uh frank pasquale and um 
a second. I forget the other person's last name, but I'm going to tell you in one moment. Um, and uh, Danielle um, uh, Keats Citrin. So Frank Pasquale and Danielle Keats Citrin. And so, you know, part of one of the things is, is that we're in a sports society in terms of like, we get kind of um, whittled down to being kind of a score. Mm -hmm. right? And this is something I talk a lot about with my students. So I'll talk about, you know, if you ever ride Uber or Lyft and you think about like one of the first things we get asked to do is to score the driver. Right. And then my students are sometimes, I was shocked when I found this out from one of the drivers that as customers or riders, we get scored as well. Right. Um, oh, you didn't know that? Yeah. No, no, I'm just maybe just horrified, but you're right. I would just, yeah. I was just not being reflexive when he said yeah, that. No, yeah, and so and I didn't know that at first. I was like, word? And, you know, and I told some friends about it. They're like, oh, we get scored as well. And I was like, I didn't even know, right? Oh, jeez. And, you know, and, I was and so I bring this up to my students. It's like when you think about if you go, let's say, for those of us who have Apple products, if we go to the Apple store, one of the first things we receive when we come home is an email saying, how did so-and-so do, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of our interactions with customer service and so forth, we're expected to kind of score somebody. Right? right. And so there's all these ways that like, you know, if you think about teaching evaluations, right, as a teacher, yeah. we're evaluated with a score. Right. right? And, and so there's all these kind of ways that we have the scored society. And part of, I think, one of the issues with the alternative data conversation that concerns me, and this is something I'm going to actually be expanding on in some of my future research, is that in my chapter for Dr. Benjamin's book, um, I talked about how you have policymakers and regulators concerned about alternative data, mm -hmm. and they're using language like it's the wild, wild west, right? And so that's kind of the language they're using to describe, uh -huh. you know, uh, alternative data. And what they're getting at is also like, how do we regulate kind of um, financial technology? How do we regulate kind of, you know, uh, big tech, right? So it's part of this bigger conversation about what is the regulation of kind of big tech data sharing, you know, um, fintech, which is, you know, the abbreviation for financial technology. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested in, and I cited some of the um, policymakers who are putting out kind of calls for more kind of research into what is the impact of alternative data, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, I wrote a report for um, data for progress on alternative data, and I looked at different proposals for alternative data that various politicians have made. So everyone from, you know, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, before she, when, when she was running for president, one of her proposals was for kind of alternative data to help close the racial wealth gap through what she saw as what she argued was alternative data could help with like black home ownership, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, Congressman Tim Scott, the Republican, he was proposing alternative data, right? But he was proposing it to try to help Vanguard score. And so right. this is an example where, you know, some of the proposals for alternative data are really about just trying to challenge what some people see as a monopoly mm -hmm. in the marketplace of the big companies like, um, you know, Experian or Equifax and so forth, right? But they're not trying to challenge the scored society. And so on one hand, alternative data folks, they're challenging inequality on one hand, 
but they're not challenging the sports society. They're just kind of embracing or accepting the fact that we're in a sports society. And mm-hmm. even some of these regulators who are talking about a wild, wild west are saying, you know, oh, you know, we got to kind of get a handle on this or we have concerns about discrimination with social media data being used. They're not necessarily trying to regulate the um, credit scoring in that way, right? Mm -hmm. So Bernie Sanders, one of his proposals as president was to try to get like a public credit registry. And that's something that Mm -hmm. I talk about in my my, uh, report on alternative data for data for progress. And that came out like, it came out last year. And one of the things is, is like Demos has pushed for a public credit registry, right? The question I had, so on one hand, what they're trying to do is they're saying, well, a credit registry shouldn't have so much private control, Mm -hmm. right? Meaning, why are these for-profit companies able to kind of control our credit system to the extent that they do, right? And some of the ways they control the credit system is through the lack of regulation about them. And this is something that I'm concerned about is that there's a lack of kind of political will among a lot of elected officials to actually hold credit scoring companies accountable. And a lot of credit scoring companies, they don't reveal how they actually calculate their scores. Mm-hmm. They haven't really always been willing to be forthcoming, even when elected officials have tried to hold them accountable. But this is you know, a question of why do these for-profit companies get to get away with it, right? Why do they get to kind of conceal how they actually organize their data which has such a huge impact on the socioeconomic landscape. And why are they allowed to get away with that? And so that's a question to me of regulation, right? And of the role of the state needing to step up and regulate the credit scoring industry. So right now, the best we kind of have as proposals is for people saying, well, we should have a public credit registry. But part of the question I was raising at the end of that chapter, and I appreciate you you uh, bringing it up, is that it was saying, you know, even if you're critiquing each other or you're saying my data is better than your data or my data is more racially, is less racially biased than your data, right? Mm-hmm. Or even if you're saying, you know, um, for-profit companies shouldn't be in this and public, you know, you're still calling for a scored society. Mm-hmm. And so that's the question I was also raising is, can we imagine a society where it's not scored? What does it mean to imagine and kind of build towards uh, a strong, you know, um, public economy that's not based on scoring people. That's where I'm headed in my thinking. Mm-hmm. You know? And I'm looking for fellow travelers. <laughs> in your in- editor's introduction of Maryam Kabas, We Do This Till, we're free- Till We Free Us, you note and discursively analyze how the abolition discourse has been dispersed everywhere on social media, in popular magazines, in news programs, and in our everyday repertoires. Since the verdict of Derek Chauvin, I see that many are grappling with a sense of justice, that they want to cautiously celebrate the verdict, but acknowledge that this may be in tension with the ultimate goals of abolition. Um, Marianne Kaba, in her book, writes that she's not against indicting killer cops, but knows that indictments won't and can't end oppressive policing, and asks us instead to redirect our energies to envision a better form of justice. Why do you think that we, and I say this, we in the general broad sense, um, despite adopting the term and concept of abolition so readily, continue to live with these concerns and prefer the motto of defunding the police? Or or maybe a better way to ask that last part of the question is, do you think that we conflate abolition and defund the police? 
So let's start with the kind of abolition defund the police stuff. So, you know, one thing that you see is this debate about kind of defund the police, right? And some people saying, is it a quote unquote good slogan? Does it turn people off and so forth, right? One of the things about defund the police is defund the police is not necessarily inherently abolitionist. Some people will say it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people who say it is inherently abolitionist could be pro-abolition or anti-abolition, right? Um, so you have people on both sides who will sometimes conflate it with abolition. Um, I'm of the camp that says defund the police is not inherently abolitionist. And the reason being is that the police are obviously one part of um, the punishment, you know, kind of industry and of state violence. But abolition, if we think about something like the prison industrial complex, and so that's a concept that the abolitionist organization Critical Resistance, which has been around for about three decades now, the prison industrial complex, it's about thinking about prisons and policing, but also about all the different ways that punishment, um, particularly punishment that's meted out through the state, organizes a range of our institutions. So if we think about, for example, the recent murder of 16-year-old Makia Bryant um, by an officer with Columbus Police Department. But part of the situation she was in was she was um, uh, trying to protect herself from the threat of harm Mm -hmm. that she was experiencing while she was in a foster home. So if we think about the work of Professor Dorothy Roberts, and uh, for your listeners who don't know, Dorothy Roberts is in the School of Law, as well as a professor of sociology at um, University of Pennsylvania. And she has the book called Shattered Bonds, and it's all about the child welfare services. And one of the things about child welfare services is that, you know, they are part of the state. Her research shows that, you know, Black families are disproportionately harmed and targeted by child protective services. Um, than white families. It can be often more difficult for black families to be able to get custody back of their children, right? And the way that black children will be taken out of black families. When I say black families, I don't mean just from the custody of their parents, but in the case of like Makia Bryant, she and her siblings were taken out of the custody of her grandmother, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is something where if we have an analysis of the prison industrial complex, it means that we're thinking about not only prisons and policing, but we're also thinking critically about, you know, the carceral aspects of social work, the carceral mm-hmm. aspects of child protective services, the carceral aspects of the mental health industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of uh, substance abuse, right? I did these data stories for Colin Kaepernick's Abolition mm-hmm. for the People, and one of the data stories, I emphasize this role of diversion programs and diversion programs um, are these programs that are meant to kind of divert people from spending too much time in prison or jail and to kind of divert them to uh, being under some type of community supervision, which means you're still under carceral control of some type, right? Mm -hmm. And you have organizations like AFSC, American Friends Service Committee, and others who've talked about the treatment industrial complex. And they're talking about all these for-profit companies, particularly those that are in the healthcare industry, that are getting into kind of 
quote unquote, criminal justice reform. And they're the ones who want to get the contracts for the drug testing and for the kind of required counseling that people have to do. Part of what happens and what I amplified in my data story for Colin Kaepernick was that, you know, what does it mean that we tie wellness with the constant threat of being incarcerated, right? So part of the treatment industrial complex is that if you fail, quote unquote, at getting better, whether it's through, if you're put into diversion program for so-called anger management issues, if you're put in a diversion program because you had substance abuse issues, right? And then you quote unquote fail at those programs and part of your failure might be because you can't afford the fees to participate, right? Mm-hmm. Or because you don't have the time to try to manage a job, try to pay rent on you know, what usually you don't have any money to pay rent for and you're just trying to subsist and then make all these required meetings that also you have to pay for, right? you might end up quote unquote failing and you're always constantly being threatened with the with incarceration, right? That's not healthy, right? And it doesn't encourage health, right? Individually or on a social level. So this is why conflating defunding the police with abolition isn't useful, right? right? It's, an, it's a major step and a major step partly because there's so much support for the police, mm-hmm. right? And because the police are well organized politically, Right. So it's a major step to call for defunding the police, but it's not inherently abolitionist because part of what makes up carceral systems, mm-hmm. part of what makes up um, uh, carceral systems and part of what makes up, you know, the prison industrial complex isn't just the police. Mm-hmm. Right. It's also our child protective services. It's also, you know, the way that social workers are often trained to be carceral, right? And, you, and to be fair, you have different social work students and schools. They're trying to challenge that organizationally and politically, right? To challenge kind of how social workers are trained. It's, you know, but you have mental health services that's tried up to carcerality, right? Even if you think about something like if you get robbed and you want to report to your insurance, a lot of times they're going to demand what? A police report. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's all these things in our society that, you know, if you're trying to get some type of repair, mm-hmm. right, for yourself or for something that was stolen from you, right, it's bound up to some type of kind of calling the authorities or reporting to the authorities as kind of the legitimate avenue for dealing with stuff, right? This is why if we only say defund the police and assume that equals abolition, all these other forms of carceral control that operate mm-hmm. and that are treated as an alternative to the police, right? So I'll give you an example. Some people might say we should have more social workers in schools Mm -hmm. and not police officers, right? Mm -hmm. On one hand, yes, right? But on the other hand, that means you have to retrain social work Mm -hmm. because a lot of social workers are the ones who are gonna call the police. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So you might have the police in schools, but they might end up reporting you to authorities or something, do you know what I mean, right? Like mm-hmm. there's ways that like you can't, you know, if we only stop and defund the police and assume inherently that's abolition, we miss kind of what it means to abolish carceral institutions right. and the carceral logic yeah. of making us better and the carceral logic of repair. Mm-hmm. 
So I think this, where you stop, um, transitions well into my next question about mm -hmm. your really lovely talk for the Asian American Writers Workshop. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the Anna Wynn who typed you a question that was written aloud. <laughs> I, I laugh because I know a lot of Anna Wynn, so I'm one of them. Um, <laughs> because my own research concerns is really about the banality of language. Mm -hmm. And how we take concepts for granted and retool them in a way that loses their significance. Mm -hmm. um, I had asked you what what might be the alternative, there's that word again, alternative, to some of our complicit practices. Because the concept of abolition now not only refers to prison and policing, we've extended it to include our own tendency to police or have a disciplinary punitive mindset in other aspects of our life or in other landscapes or institutions how can we better share the goals of abolition into our own daily vocabulary? And how, how do we just get rid of this discipline and punish mindset that we're trying to unlearn, but some of us might have difficulty in unlearning that? I mean, I think I'll say this. So on one hand, I, this is something that I think I would like to see more clarified in some of these conversations. Mm -hmm. So, I get the critique, and this is something I talked about in the introduction to Miriam's book, is that mm -hmm. when Miriam and Rachel Herzing, Rachel Herzing was one of the co-founders of Critical Resistance and is still an organizer. Um, when they say, you know, abolition is not your, and, and this is their language, they say abolition is not your fucking feelings, right? Right. The way I read that was they were saying, you know, how we feel personally about something doesn't have to become policy, mm -hmm. right? And, and I agree with that because, you know, policy is really something that binds everybody, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting because uh, to me, policy should be good for everybody. It shouldn't just be good for you right? or me as an individual, right? And that requires us to get out of our fucking feelings, right? So there's all this feminist literature about like, you know, being in your feel, all this stuff. That's great, right? You know, being in our feelings is good, right? A lot of people today have confused being in our feelings with being self-absorbed, right. right? Which is very different from what some of the feminists like Audre Lorde and so forth talked about. Audre Lorde and Adrian Rich and so forth, you know, people are talking about kind of being present, Right? Mm -hmm. And being present and kind of understanding that, you know, there is a spirituality, there is a sensuality, there is an eroticism. You know, if you think about Audrey Lorde talking about, the, you know, the power of eroticism and so forth, to being present, right? Mm -hmm. And to kind of being present uh, and in tune with our own relationship to the world, right? And our relationship to each other, right? Mm -hmm. But some people today, I think, have confused the idea of feelings as being self-absorbed mm -hmm. and sometimes have confused feminism with being self-absorbed, right? The reason I bring this up is that what I read, and so that whole you know, point I was making about feminism and being self-absorbed, right? This is not what Miriam and Rachel are saying, but I'm okay. linking it to what Rachel and Miriam are saying, right? Mm -hmm. Is that when we talk about politics and policy, right? Do we think it's good for everybody, right? Or do we just think it's good for us? Policy can't just be what we feel and what we want, right? As an individual, that's just some selfish shit and self-absorbed, right? And 
unfortunately, a lot of people confuse the two. And then they kind of associate with being embodied or being kind of, you know, a feminist gesture and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that means your feminism just some self-absorption. Do you see what I'm saying? And highly individualistic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so policy really requires us to have a bigger conversation. Mm-hmm. It means working through our feelings. It means kind of saying, what do we really want? It means being honest about what we really want. And sometimes being honest about is what we really want good for the world or is it just good for us individually? And why do we think it's good for us? That means we have to get into kind of some of our feelings about, do we just want vengeance? Do we just want revenge? Do we just want punishment, right? Mm -hmm. Do we think that that's actually good for the world, right? So when we think about, for example, if somebody harmed us, we might want revenge on that person or we might just want that person punished to no end, Mm -hmm. right? But is that necessarily the way we want to deal with harm on a social level, right? Does putting somebody in prison and saying, anytime somebody harms somebody, we're going to put them in prison. Is that something we want? So one of the things that I was trying to get at in the AAWW talk was in one of the questions, and I don't remember, maybe it was the question you asked, but it was, you know, in the Q&A where I talked about, I said, you know, um, like, I don't want to be walking around and every time somebody racially insults me on the street, I don't want to be calling a hotline. Mm-hmm. That's just me. So I, I believe, for example, if you are being harassed at work, I think if you're being harassed in your building, right, I think it's fair for you to call the landlord if somebody keeps harassing you in your building. I think it's fair for you to uh, go uh, and and report somebody at work who's sexually harassing you or whatever and making your life a living hell at work, right? I think it's okay to do that and to go through the proper channels to file a grievance, right? But what I was getting at about kind of what some people are, you know, suggesting about like report, you know, anti-Asian hate incident. And, you know, you have a couple different organizations that want us to be doing this, right? Partly because they say they want to collect more data. But every time I walk down the street and I get harassed and somebody might say something, you know, fucked up to me that, you know, like, hey, Chinese bitch, I mean, I've been called everything. I don't know if the first thing I want to do is call a hotline. Right. Right. Because that becomes that kind of see something, say something type of thing. You know, at schools right now, they have bias incidents hotlines. They want you to call or report anytime you see something that you just think is biased or that Mm -hmm. made you uncomfortable. That's very different than if somebody is systematically targeting you for harassment Mm -hmm. and is making your time at your job extremely stressful, right? Mm -hmm. Going through a grievance process to me is different than you saw something, you heard something, and you didn't like what somebody said, and you decided to, you know, report them for bias, and then you report this person for bias, and then you call this hotline, you call that. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and that type of kind of, it encourages you to be in your feelings in a certain way, and that every time you're in your feelings, you're going to report somebody. Do you see what I'm saying? Right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually encourage you to say, I don't want to live this way. How can I talk to others who don't want to live this way either? Mm-hmm. And we figure out a solution of what is the world we want to build so we don't live this way. Do you know what I mean? Right. Instead yeah. of just you reporting people nonstop, right? I don't want to live like that. 
I don't want to live being harassed, but I also don't want to live reporting people nonstop. So I think one of the things that I'm interested in is on one hand, we talk about not policing people for our everyday interactions, right? Mm -hmm. Part of it is, I think we use the word policing too much. To me, I think policing is a very specific thing. You have to have, I think it requires you have the power of the state, right? And that you have the power of the state to do what the police do. People today use policing from everything from like, if we go back to social media, our conversation about social media being a hellscape, right? Like, I, <laughs> you know, uh, people sometimes have said things like, so-and-so is policing my response. Bitch, they're not policing your responses. I mean, come on, you know, mm-hmm. like, they didn't like what you said and they're being a fucking harasser. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean, right? But there's this idea of like, if somebody sets a boundary with you mm-hmm. that you don't like, or somebody disagrees with you, right? Or somebody calls you out, right? That this becomes policing. Mm-hmm. And so people use the term police in such broad ways. I think the importance is to think about the difference between being punitive and establishing what are fair boundaries. Mm-hmm. Right? And I don't think that we always have the thoughtfulness to distinguish between all of this stuff, right? Because to be able to say somebody is establishing fair boundaries means we have to look at ourselves and say, are we crossing boundaries? Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Are we maybe doing something that isn't cool? So I, I think that there's this way where I think it is important for people to think about the way we've absorbed a punitive kind of mindset, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that every example of somebody establishing some type of boundary or holding people accountable, accountable for things yeah. is always a punitive mindset. I think you're right, because I I tend to think that people conflate a lot of these very specific conceptual terms. And so I think rather than policing, some people just mean like what you were saying, accountability, but they choose that particular word maybe because it has been so embedded in our in our discourse now. And I think it can mean different things. So, Mm -hmm. for example, accountability, there's several layers, right? So if we Mm -hmm. think about consequences to actions, um, accountability, punishment, um, policing, to Mm -hmm. me, these can mean different things, right? And they don't always mean one and the same, Mm -hmm. right? But depending on what the situation is, depending on what people's relationships are with each other, mm-hmm. and what is the purpose for why somebody's trying to hold somebody accountable, right? Mm-hmm. It can kind of come off like this. So I'll give you an example. If a friend tries to hold me accountable for something, right? I'm probably less likely to think that they're policing me. Do you see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Right. If mm-hmm. it's somebody who comes to me and says, I'm really concerned, I feel like you did this in our relationship. And it's making me feel very distant from you. And I hope that I have the maturity and also that we have enough care in our relationship and that I care enough about the relationship that to me, I'm not going to assume that's something to try to punish me, right? Mm-hmm. I'm also going to assume that it wasn't easy for my friend to have to bring this up to me, that it was kind of a risk to them or whatever, right? That it creates mm-hmm. this kind of weirdness in our relationship. So I'm probably less likely to call that policing. But if some stranger on Twitter or on the street decides they want to hold me accountable for something that bothers them that mm-hmm. wasn't even a transgression towards them, then someone might call that police anymore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because it's, it's not happening in the course of like an actual relationship that has been established, right? Where you have some type of already existing kind of experience with each other. 
right? Um, you have people on social media who kind of designate themselves the deputies to hold somebody accountable or punish somebody, like whether it's a celebrity or somebody that did something. And they don't know these people personally, but they kind of decide, you know, it's their function to kind of hold somebody accountable. That to me is not necessarily the same thing as friends holding each other accountable. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's not to say that friends can't try to humiliate each other. It's not to say that friends, you know, friends can do all the sort types of things to each other. They can humiliate each other. They can project things onto each other. They can try to hurt each other, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's always purity in friendship per se. But I think a lot of times if you're actual have a real relationship with somebody that has some meaning, I think that there's a lot of times more thought and maybe even more anxiety put into actually kind of trying to hold them accountable for something that they mm-hmm. did to hurt you. But if you're just kind of doing it to a stranger, I don't know if we're always thinking on that level of like, you know, where am I coming from and trying to hold you accountable, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know if we're always that concerned about things like humiliation or are we really setting up the terms for you to be ready to kind of admit that you mm-hmm. did something wrong. Jamie? Yeah. So <clears throat> maybe there's a first stage in acknowledging these relationships before people start using abolition and um, is it um, just the practice and concept of abolition as a metaphor is, do you think that people are using it as a metaphor? I think right now the word abolition is being said quite a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And I think people are trying to figure it out. So on one hand it's entered into the mainstream, Mm -hmm. meaning, you know, good morning America yeah. Right, he's talking about it like yeah, good yeah. housekeeping right I grew up reading good housekeeping because my mother mm-hmm. subscribed to good housekeeping uh-huh. good housekeeping back in the day had you know stories about cakes and stuff and like you know decorating your living room right mm-hmm. they're talking about abolition right uh-huh. but today people use the term abolition quite broadly people are figuring out what it means mm-hmm. some people I think want to be part of the conversation for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. some people are tailoring it to kind of whatever agenda they have, right? So I don't know if I would say that there's a coherent definition of abolition that everybody Mm -hmm. is using when Mm -hmm. they're using it. When I was reading We Do This Till We Free Us, I felt like Miriam Kaba had a particular usage of it. Is that... Mm -hmm. So I guess this goes to my next question that I'm remembering the first phases of the social movements of the summer of 2020, a lot of people on social media were creating these aesthetically pleasing memes and infographics on um, campaign zeros, hashtag eight can't wait, mm-hmm. which already came into prominence in 2014 following the killing of Michael Brown and Ferguson. I'm sure you saw this. That a lot of scholars pointed out that a lot of scholars and Miriam Kaba wrote that those eight steps were, were just kind of shallow analytical reforms. And that some of the steps, which included de-escalation, banning chokeholds, and immediate shooting at people moving cars, were already part of the strategies in police departments. So then some some scholars retooled that to hashtag eight to abolition quickly, and it brought our attention to existing work by black scholars and activists. And I ask this because I, I know you're quite active on Twitter, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this tendency to mimic and uncritically take content from social media and call that digital activism or broad activism? In what ways might retweeting something 
or reposting an infographic contribute to erasing the work of important scholars and activists, particularly Black activists and scholars? So let me get a sense of what you're asking me. Mm -hmm. You started by talking about this kind of debate about it can't wait mm -hmm. and then it abolition. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like the real question you're asking me is, does our kind of preoccupation with what happens on social media as activism erase the work of other activists? Is that mm -hmm. what you're asking me? I only ask this because I'm on social media quite often. I see people repost the same things, but I don't have a general sense that people know who wrote what, who the author is, and what was the content. I just see infographics. And so I think it could be like that this out formation, like this general thing that doesn't have a lot of content, but it's something that has been reshared so immediately and so many times that I'm not sure if people actually read the content that they repost. I don't know. <laughs> you know I, like, mm -hmm. I can't answer that question. I can't answer, do people read content that they repost? I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. So that I, so I was giving you context to the, the um, clarification question okay. that you had asked me. But do you think, in, could that contribute to erasing the work of people who have done that work already, but then their work has been reduced into memes or infographics? There's an entire world of people who aren't active on social media who do work, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll give you examples. Part of why I started my Asian American Writers Workshop lecture mm -hmm. with some of the examples of Asian American organizations that try to organize around anti-Asian violence. And I don't even agree politically with all those organizations. I've got critiques of a bunch of those organizations. And some of those organizations I worked intimately with or for. Right. But part of it was because a lot of people who are part of social justice circles, I'll say this, they don't talk about, I don't know what they know, but I'll say they mm -hmm. don't talk about in a lot of their think pieces or on social media. They don't talk a lot about like these Asian American organizations from the 90s or the early 2000s. Because I talked about that there are Asian American organizations that came out of 1992 LA Rebellion. Some of them had already been established, but they were part of the organizing work in the you know, early 2000s and early in the 1990s and early 2000s that was part of Asian Americans taking on Asian capitalists and Asian sweatshop owners and Asian brand labels like Forever 21, right? A lot of Asian Americans that I meet and I meet a lot of Asian Americans who are interested in issues of racism and racial justice. Mm -hmm. they're, they're in some of these circles, but they also have their own kind of work that they're doing locally and in various spaces. They don't know who a lot of these organizations are, mm -hmm. right? Even though these organizations are just one generation before them and still around most of them, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of them might know who like Yuri Kochiyama is or Grace Lee Boggs is. And this is one of the points I've been raising in several different spaces is we'll talk about kind of these hidden figures of the 60s and 70s. A lot of Asian Americans have, that I've met who are concerned about racism have a very limited understanding of some of the, or knowledge, I should say, of some of the Asian American organizations in the 60s and 70s. They talked about kind of the same figures. But a lot of Asian Americans I've met who are concerned about racial injustice don't know about the Asian Americans of the 90s and the early 2000s organizations, mm -hmm. right? 
And some of those organizations don't have strong social media presence, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of organizers don't actually have strong social media presence. And I'm thinking about organizers I know who are like in the trenches doing all this organizing with grassroots, door knocking, long meetings, community, neighborhood organizing, deportation, sweatshop work, right? Like they just aren't active on social media, Mm -hmm. right? So there are people who have done a great job being very active on social media and using social media to kind of push conversations. But not all of those people are, you know, doing necessarily on the groundwork in a particular way, or sometimes they are. But a lot of people who are doing on the groundwork aren't necessarily the ones on social media, right? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that the work on social media isn't real work? I believe it is real political work, right? The issue is, it's real political work that's more likely to shape the conversation. Do you see the difference here, right? Mm -hmm. If we think about language, if we think about kind of discourse, if we think about analytical frameworks, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's people who are going to be kind of more cultural workers who are going to get attention for that. Cultural workers are the ones who write the books. Cultural workers are the ones who are going to be more likely to be interviewed on TV. Cultural workers are, you know, the ones who are going to write right? Think about most of the blue Asian blue checks on Twitter. Most of them are not organizers. They're mm-hmm. like writers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And this is not to say that they're not doing real work. It's just to say they're producing discourse a lot of times, right? This is not to say that that discourse doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. I produce a lot of discourse, but it's to say that, you know, a lot of organizers, one, just are not active on social media in the same way. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And then two, not all organizers choose to kind of have digital activism be their main thing, mm-hmm. right? So even if they are on social media, they might have a social media account, but they're not doing what they consider digital activism it might just be to promote like this rally or that event or try mm-hmm. to get signatures, right? But also a lot of people who are more likely to kind of shape discourse are going to be the ones who write a think piece. And when we think about how language travels, right? Well, What's easier for somebody like, okay, so in my city, there's a Providence Youth Student Movement. When I ask people, have you heard of the Providence Youth Student Movement? A bunch of people, including Asian Americans all over the country, have never heard of them. They've been around for about 20 years doing all this important grassroots work with Southeast Asian youth, Mm -hmm. right? Around police brutality, around gang databases. They've collaborated and partnered with, you know, other people of color coalitions. They are considered an important organization in Providence, one of the co-founders of the organization is now the national director for the Southeast Asian Freedom Network, which has been around for almost 20 years and is a major organization of Southeast Asian Americans, particularly trying to fight deportation in the prison industrial complex. Well, a lot of people don't even know what CFAN is, Southeast Asian Freedom Network. So the thing is, like, who's doing the work is not always the one who is shaping the cultural discourse mm-hmm. on this kind of discursive level, right? Mm -hmm. But also discursive work is just going to travel in a different way a lot of times, right? Mm -hmm. If part of the work that like an organization in a city is doing is asking you to show up Mm -hmm. to a rally or is asking you to go door knocking with them or is asking you to show up to a city council meeting, Right now, some people are able to do some of that stuff virtually, right? Like you're seeing all these meetings where people are calling in. But most of the time, you have to show up in person. Do you see what I'm saying? Right? Mm -hmm. Whereas it's easier to circulate on Twitter 
or on your Facebook or Instagram, somebody's think piece. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? And have that shared nationally. And so discourse just circulates differently when it's mm-hmm. easily kind of transmitted through social media. Do you see what I'm saying? So to go back to your um, AAWW talk, mm-hmm. I want to ask about comparative analysis and categorizations, especially after listening to your episode on Time to Say Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, when you and Jay were talking about identity, it seems like maybe I'm misinterpreting it, but there seemed to be um, a disagreement about what the Asian American identity in the United States mean. You find that identity is a state sanction project. I think those were your words. Um, and then I think this goes to your, in, in general, your work about um, your discussion on the historical significance on Korean and Korean American solidarity with black communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I may be wrong, but sometimes when I listen to your interviews, I sense some sort of disapproval towards some comparative analyses, especially Mm -hmm. in light of the violence in current Asian and Asian American communities. Um, Your take, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that if we aren't careful, we might actually decenter abolitionist values and goals. And in her book, Miriam quotes Robin D.G. Kelly on his thoughts on how reforms may just end up reproducing the system in another form. I bring him up because recently, in an interview with LA Times, Kelly stated that internationalism is the antidote to violence, repression, and exploitation. So what do you think is a thoughtful comparative analysis using abolition as a theoretical concept and practice? And and how can it be used in tandem with Kelly's vision of internationalism without losing the poignant critiques of and on a very long-standing US problem? So first of all, I didn't read what Robin Kelly said, so I'm not going to respond to kind okay. of Robin Kelly here, just because I'm not prepared to kind of say whether I agree with Robin Kelly or not on this, right? Mm-hmm. I'll say this about internationalism, though, is that people use that term, um, they often use it in a couple of ways. One is they assume that internationalism is always liberatory. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not, right? Guess what? Globalization is internationalism. So is imperialism. And so is, you know, things like trade agreements. Do you know what I mean? So you can mm-hmm. have various forms of internationalism, right? Like the axis of evil and, and, and George, you know, W. Bush des- designating an axis of evil for, you know, other countries in the West to quote unquote freeze out, right? And I'm using, you know, that's a sanitized term to say freeze out. That's internationalism, right? I think we need to debunk the idea that internationalism always means liberatory. Two, a lot of times, you know, when people say internationalism, it often is kind of directed to Black people, right? There's often this kind of assumption that Black people need to be taught internationalism in a particular way. This doesn't mean that um, Black people, you know, don't already think internationally, right? And Black people are also an international people. But a lot of times what you have is you have, um, and I know, you know, this isn't the case with Dr. Kelly, but you often have non-Black people of color who will talk about internationalism in this kind of coded way to say Black people shouldn't just think about Black people in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, Black people who actually are internationalists in terms of thinking about other Black people internationally, that internationalism is not usually what people are talking about. They're usually talking about this multiracial internationalism. And it's basically kind of this way of, it's another version of saying going beyond Black and white, and it's usually directed at Black people. So there's that. But what I'll say is that what I was talking about with Jay 
in, in the, the conversation was, I don't understand how Asian Americans can assume that Asian American uh, as a racial group is just a matter of kind of how we identify and whether or not we see ourselves in each other, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of Asian Americans, we try to destabilize the idea of Asian American being a race by talking about our internal diversity. So we talk about class politics, you know, ethnic politics, our histories of colonialism against each other and so forth. What I was saying is to him, that to me borders on kind of what white people say. So when white people are like, well, what is race? Are we a race? There's working class white people. But, you know what I mean? It's like, how, how do you get out of saying that you're a race? Like, that mm -hmm. is like one of the weirdest, like that just estranged me. That's almost like a colorblind discourse, right? To be like, well, what is race? Like, we're not a race. And so you have Asian Americans who, you know, they'll say like, well, we became a race because like, you know, out of solidarity and Asian Americans and so forth, right? And then it's supposed to be that, well, are we really a race when we don't practice that solidarity with each other? I and mean, we just have certain ethnic groups within Asian America get more, you know, resources or more attention or something. If we think about race scholarship, race, race is an idea, an ideology, a structuring logic of modernity, of the West, mm -hmm. right? Of colonialism, of the state, right? I don't understand how Asian Americans think that we're somehow outside of all these processes mm -hmm. and that we can just say, are we a race or not a race based upon how we identify and if we have solidarity with each other? Mm -hmm. That's what I was trying to get at. I just don't understand mm -hmm. how we can do that. And I was trying to say that there's a difference between how we might identify with being part of a race, mm -hmm. right? Versus are we a race? You know what I mean? But if, if you think that you're able to kind of have avoided racialization and the process of becoming a race, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> and I say that, you know, and Jay knows I disagree with him on that. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, I read your, um, your piece for the margins really late, but I like to connect that essay on um, the carceral logic of the model minority myth mm -hmm. with how you're talking in the piece that you're, you think of it as another state project that reinforces racism. And and I want to ask you, because when you were giving your AAWW talk, you had mentioned the, um, was it the Senate bill that was trying to call attention to what could be categorized as an anti-Asian hate crime? I think it has passed. Yeah, it yeah. passed in late April. So... And, you you know, throughout the conversation, we're talking about the limitations of language and categorizations and how those particular language practices have traveled. So um, when we talk about crime and violence, from what I understand of what you've been saying to me throughout this conversation, this bill just reinforces more of that carceral logic, right? So how can a healthy policy not bind us into the, the trap of carceral logic? I mean, this is something I'm struggling with, and this is something I talked about at the end of the AAWW talk, is mm -hmm. that you know, I, I do think that we have a right to seek protection, mm -hmm. right? And to expect to be protected. Part of the question is, what does that mean, right? And so on one hand, for example, I think it's fair for somebody to hold an employer accountable for harassment, 
right? Or to hold a landlord accountable for allowing someone to be racially or sexually harassed in their living space. They're constantly being harassed by a resident or something. So I believe in institutions having to be accountable for protecting people, right? That are being um, violated in some way. Part of the issue is I don't think it can be by designating something a crime, mm-hmm. right? So for example, and this is something I'm sorting through still, I know that I'm opposed to police officers going to prison, mm-hmm. even when they've killed civilians, right? And the reason I'm opposed to police officers going to prison, even when they killed civilians, is because I'm opposed to prison as punishment, right? Mm-hmm. For anybody, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not opposed to police officers being sued and held accountable in civil court, right? Mm-hmm. Civil law by survivors of, um, of family members who've been killed. So I don't have a problem with police officers being held accountable through the state, right? And in that case, if they're being sued, they're going through civil court, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll end up in prison. So this is something I'm sorting through is like, what does it mean to seek kind of the state to hold people accountable, Mm -hmm. but not through a carceral lens. Is that possible, right? A lot of people use the term state violence. They'll say state violence is redundant. They'll say it's really, you know, the state itself is violent, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of what I'm sorting through is, can we have a state that is not carceral? And can the state act not carceral even now, right? Before we get to kind of an abolitionist state. Do you see what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is something where for me, thinking about like police officers, okay, well, I know I don't want the state to hold the police officers to put them in prison, but I don't have a problem with through the state, people go through a court system to file a lawsuit and try to win a civil case against people and to be awarded a civil, right? Mm-hmm. That's still a state process, do you mean? Mm-hmm. But it's not calling for somebody to be incarcerated, right? Right. And so it's not a perfect kind of metaphor for thinking through some of these issues, but it gets at kind of, you know, the question you're asking about, how do we think about non-carceral responses? And this is something I, I've been thinking yeah. a lot about but policy is not something that I can just propose individually. It's a bigger conversation. When I say it's a bigger conversation, it's one that I'm struggling with. It's one mm-hmm. that I don't have an answer for. I just know what my parameters are, mm-hmm. what I will support or not support, right? I can't support people um, calling for more pro-crime legislation. Mm-hmm. I just can't. That's my boundary. So that means then, you know, the obvious question is, well, what do you propose outside of that? Well, I'm, I'm open to having that conversation with a mm-hmm. whole bunch of people, right? right? But a lot of times that question, I'm not saying this is what you're doing, but a lot of that times that question is not asked in good faith. It's asked in yeah. kind of like, you know, it, it's already t- accepting as, as only criminal justice measures can be the way, right? right? Yeah. It doesn't really actually want to grapple with, could we think of other alternatives? Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at an Android. 
I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.